0: All right, we are in week two of a series called The Skeptic and the Believer. I've loved diving into this because, and essentially the series, what we're doing is looking at some of the main questions that people have about faith, about Christianity. Um, If there are people who don't believe in God or don't believe in Christianity, um, their objections typically are, well, I don't believe that God exists. And we talked about that last week, how science actually, the more scientists dive into creation, the universe, um, the more they see signs that point to a creator. So that science actually points to the existence of God. And we've been taught over the years somehow that science and faith somehow are on opposing sides. That was last week. And if you want to get caught up and listen to last week's message, you can go to our website, homesteadcommunitychurch.org. And there is a link for media, and there's the sermons there if you want to get caught up. Well, some of the other objections that we hear about faith is this, and we'll talk about this in a couple of weeks. And we recognized this this past week in Las Vegas. There is evil in this world. And God says he's good, and God says he's powerful. How can he allow evil, so much evil in this world? Um, Either he's willing to stop it, but he can't, Or he could stop evil, but he's not willing to do that. And we have a hard time grasping that. How can we love a God, worship a God, who allows so much evil in our world? We're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks. Today, what we're diving into is the Bible. The Bible. Is it truth? Can it be trusted? Um, We are going to look at objections that people have about this, that it's made up that it has changed over the years, that the church over the, over the past several centuries has altered the message to suit its political needs or to have more power over people, um, that it cannot be trusted. And mostly what we hear from people is that it's irrelevant in today's world. But we're going to look into that today. We're going to look at the Bible. Can it be trusted? Can we believe what it says as the Word of God? My first job as a teenager... Um, this would have been the summer of my, between my junior and senior year, I started working for Snippers Lawn Maintenance in Western Canada, I grew up in Alberta, Canada. So I was, I, would, I was on the crew of a lawn maintenance company. So we would spend a lot of days in the truck driving from you know apartment complexes. A lot of what we would do is condominium complexes where my job would be to go mow the little tiny backyards of 100 different you know, condominium complexes. That was, I was living the dream at Snippers. Um, I worked with a guy, so we would spend a lot of time in the work truck driving from place to place. One of the guys I worked with was named Barry. He was older than me. He was a Christian as well. He knew I was a preacher's kid. So he would talk to me all the time about the gospel and the Bible and faith. And he loved to talk about it. Barry was a guy who knew more scripture verses by memory than I think I'd ever met anyone like that. Like he had so much of the Bible memorized. But he had it memorized really, I mean, for a number of reasons. And I respect anybody who has that much scripture memorized. I love that. But his goal in having all these scripture verses memorized was any time he would come in contact with someone who didn't believe the Bible, he would just, like, blast them with verses. Well, in Ephesians, it says this. And what about Corinthians? How do you answer that? And in Genesis, it says this. And the people are just like, "Eh." And so as we would go to these condominium complexes, Often, we would, I'd be mowing my hundred backyards, and I'd look over there, and Barry would be talking to somebody. He would have met somebody, maybe a homeowner or a, someone on the street, and you could just see him getting all excited. I'm like, oh, man, Barry, he's, he's blasting these people with Bible again. And the, the, the most entertaining would be when, as we were mowing lawns, maybe a Jehovah's Witness would be spotted Anytime Barry saw somebody, you know, two young men on a bike in dress pants and a white shirt or going door to door with pamphlets, he would, like, drop what he's doing. The The mower would still be running, and he's off. <laughs> excuse me, excuse me, what do you believe? And he would have all these questions for these poor Jehovah's Witnesses. And eventually, he got so well known that they would just be like, I'm not talking to you anymore, Barry. Or they would say, we're bringing in the big guns next time. We're bringing in Elder or whatever, and he's going to come... But after, I remember talking to Barry one day, and I said, so what would you tell him? Well, I quoted this verse, and I quoted this verse, and I, they didn't have an answer for that, and they said they, didn't dis- they disagreed with that, so I quoted this verse. And, and, and I said, okay, I said, Barry, what if they don't believe what the Bible says is true? He's like, what do you mean? I said, you're quoting scripture at them, but what if they hear that, and they're like, this is irrelevant to me. I don't believe what the Bible says anyway, so why are you quoting all this? This is not like he's proving a point. And he'd say, "Well, the Bible is truth." And I said, I, "I know that, but why do we believe that?" Well, because it says so. I'm like, well, "The Bible says it's truth. Yes, but why do we believe what the Bible says?" Because it's truth. Well, why do we believe it's truth? Because it says so. And we would just go round and round and round. Now, I'm a believer. I, w- I was more playing devil's advocate there because that's just something that's in my DNA. I like to kind of poke people with a stick a little bit, but it was. It doesn't take long in that argument. If scripture is what we use to back up our belief in scripture, well, for a skeptic, that doesn't take very long for that argument to fall apart. You're quoting scripture to prove scripture. I don't believe any of it is true. As Christians, we believe, or we base what we believe in the Bible, right? What we know of God the Father, what we know of Jesus Christ, what we know of the church. It comes from the Bible, but how do we know if it's truth? If you're a believer, and last week I said in our marriage, Christy and I, one of us is more skeptical than the other, and you can already tell who that is just from my previous story. Um, But if you're a believer, you would say, well, I believe what the Bible says. It says it's true. My Sunday school teacher told me it was true. That's all I need. For the more skeptical people, they would say, great, but I'm going to need a little bit of proof. I'm going to need some evidence. I'm going to need something more than a scripture verse to back up the truth of scripture. So we're going to look at this today. Can we trust the Bible? Can we trust it? Can we believe that it is accurate or relevant or truth? Can we trust it? There are common claims that the skeptics or the people would make trying to prove the Bible as untrustworthy, and we're going to look at a few of those today. But I believe, and I believe that there is strong evidence outside of what the Bible verses say that point to that this is accurate that this is truth that this is relevant and the word of god and hopefully more than just you know us becoming like my coworker Barry who has verses to defend our faith and that's great and that's one of the reasons we want to do this series hopefully my my goal is this that in addition to that that we would get a greater appreciation for what is in these pages that we would get a greater appreciation for what this says and how this can impact our life, that it would take a higher level of importance in our lives, in our families, that we would, you know, read it, that we would actually read it. If we believe that the Bible is the Word of God, that we would take the time and read all of it, even the parts that are hard to understand, that we would read it because we believe it is the Word of God. So we're going to start here. We've got this book. This is just one of millions and millions of these Bibles in the world. There's Bibles in the pews around you. There's a black hardcover one if you want to follow along. You've probably got some Bibles at home. Maybe you've got a bookshelf where there's about four of them that never get opened. We've got now Bibles that we can have on our phones and other mobile devices. But what is it? When was it written? Ding, that was a good point. That's a point for me. That's one for me. What is it? When was it written? Who wrote it? First of all, I just want to talk about this. If you're new to the Bible, I just want to let you know there are lots of different translations. And, and this one that I have and what we'll be reading from today is from the NIV, the New International Version. That one's about 40 years old. There are all sorts of other translations. Because the Bible was not written in English originally. We tend to look at the Bible in a very Americanized point of view. And, and uh, we just think, well, it's English. That's the way it's always been. Um, the Bible was originally written in Hebrew and Greek and parts of it in Aramaic. And eventually it was translated to English. Um, the King James Version is one of the m- most well-known English translations of the Bible. That was in the 17th century for the Church of England. It was translated to the King James. If you read the King James, it's tough to get through. It sounds a lot like Old English, lots of these and vows and, and, and words that just don't make a lot of sense. There are, you know, there are a lot of people in the world who would say, "Well, that's the true that's the true translation. That's the only one for me. I have heard it said before. King James version was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me." Right? And I can't tell you the number of things wrong with that sentence. But that was one of the early English translations. Today there are numerous English translations. Some of them translate it word for word, taking the original language one word at a time and translating it, which means it's not the easiest thing to read. Some of them translate verse by verse, very literal translations, and others are more, they translate paragraph by paragraph or thought by thought, where they're trying to make it a little smoother to read. That would be what the NIV, and sometimes we use the NLT, the New Living Translation, that's what those would be. And then some of them are straight up paraphrases, and one of the most well-known versions of that is called The Message. If you've ever heard someone say in the message translation, well, that is Eugene Peterson, a very smart biblical scholar. Over a period of years, took the Bible and he paraphrased it as best as he could into modern English. So it is; it reads very, it reads like a novel at times. So there are lots of different translations that you can read, and sometimes you'll hear a preacher say something like this, and it's more than just trying to sound smart. Um, in the original language, it says this. You'll they'll read a verse. And that word here in the original Greek or in the original Hebrew, and we say that because the Bible was originally in that language, and sometimes there's not a great way of translating the, the intended meaning of that Greek word into our English language. So sometimes it's, it brings out more insight and discovery if we can kind of look at what the original word meant. And so sometimes we'll add that in, and if you've ever heard that, that's why we do that. Um, but let's start with the basics, This is not a book, okay? Now we're like, oh, great. Um, This is not a book. This is actually a collection of writings. In here are 66 different books between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, Some are historical books. Some were all about the Jewish law. The first few books of the Old Testament are all about the Jewish law and the rules that they would have to follow, and the rituals. Some are prophecy, books in the Old Testament that are saying, here's what's going to happen in the future, where God would talk to the prophets and say, warn Israel because they are doing this, and what's going to happen in the future is this, and these are prophetic books, books of prophecy. There's books of poetry, beautiful poetry, well written. There's books that talk about the life of Jesus. Those are the Gospels. And the start of the church, the book of Acts, is all about how the church began. There are epistles, which are formal letters written by people, a lot of them by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, to groups of Christians or to individuals. Now, this is written by, hey, Grant, up there in the booth, I know you know the answer to this question. How many authors wrote the Bible? Do you remember that from JBQ? Approximately 40 authors. Yes, one more question for you, Grant. Over a period of how many years was the Bible written? Uh-oh, did I stump you? I didn't warn him I was going to do this. 40 authors over 15, 1,500 years. Yes, thank you, Grant. All right, that's, uh, Grant went through JBQ, which is a great program um, that we want to start here for kids, where it basically just goes through Bible trivia, Bible knowledge, and they commit all these things to memory. It's awesome. This book is 66 different books written by 40 different authors. Over 1,500 years. So imagine that. 1,500 years ago was the year 517. Imagine being part of writing something today to be a part of something that was also written 1,500 years ago. But yet, there is an incredible unity. There's a common story, a common thought. There is great unity that goes throughout the scripture, which is amazing when you consider over 1,500 years, 40 different authors spread out over that time. And what the Bible says, how that unity is there, and here's where it gets really interesting, is there really is one author. There really is one author. The writers of the Bible make this claim throughout that God has inspired every word in this Bible, that God has inspired it, that it is God's words. There's a couple scripture verses that make this claim And first is 2 Timothy 3.16. It sums up this view of Scripture so well. It says this, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God, that's us, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Scripture is God-breathed. He breathed his inspiration through the Holy Spirit for all 40 of those authors to write the words that God was saying. 2 Peter one twenty says this. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. These were not the prophet's own words and thoughts. For prophecy never had its origin in human will, but the prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. These are the claims that the Bible makes of itself that the writers of the Bible were writing God's word. Now, some people would say that God kind of took them over, and they didn't have the writers had no thought. They became robots, and they were just writing the words of God, and they came out of a trance. And they're like, whoa, look what I wrote, you know, that sort of thing. What most scholars would believe is that there was an inspiration that came on them, that the individual personalities and writing styles of the authors are still there, but that God breathed in them the inspiration to write what he wanted them to to say, now this is quite a claim. Here is where the debate about the Bible begins. Because it's one thing if you say, it's a great book. A lot of people wrote it. There's some good teachings in there. But when you start saying, this is the word of God, that's when the skeptics say, yeah, no thanks. I don't believe that. And that's when the believers tend to get a little bit more belligerent in their beliefs because they have God on our side. So you can't disagree with me. Because this is God's word. Don't question what I'm saying because I'm quoting to you God's word. It must be taken as absolute truth, and therefore you must agree that I'm the smartest person in the world. You know, something like that, right? That's how it goes on. This is where some of the conflict begins. The Bible claims to be the very words of God. For the believer, that is life. That is, we can look at this as 2 Timothy said, that it is useful for teaching and correcting and encouraging. That anything we need for the work that God has for us is found in this Bible, and if that's true, let's just start with this. If that's true that this is the word of God, the words of the one true God, well, that should mean that, man, this takes a whole different level of importance in our life. But we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But for the skeptic, it just sounds too mystical, manipulative, and unbelievable that you would claim that this is the very word of God. So, can we believe this? Can we trust that it is the word of God. So we're going to look at some of the some of the claims that skeptics make about this and we'll go through these. But some of them are going to be this that it's not reliable, that it was written long ago, that the message has been changed over time, that it's fiction. It's fiction. It's made up. None of the things that none of the stories that it talks about or the events that it talks about actually happened. They'll talk about contradictions, that there are mistakes in the Bible. Parts where one by one part of the Bible will say something different than the other part. And finally, they will say this, that it is irrelevant, that it is a religious work that had an impact in a culture that existed thousands of years ago, but has no place in our world today. This culture that existed thousands of years ago, this Bible that seems to condone slavery and the mistreatment of women, and genocide, and polygamy, and racism. It holds to a standard of morality that we have long moved past in our modern world, right? It holds to a standard that we have long moved past, almost like a bad 80s haircut, right? That it made sense in that culture back in the 80s, but it has no business in our world today. You know, for me, it was a little bit longer. I I used to have a lot more hair um, longer in the back, um, and then kind of flock of seagulls over to the side, a little spike over on this side. And you look at that, and you think, that apparently made sense in 1988, but has no business in today's world, right? You would agree with that. Well, a lot of people see the Bible as that way. That apparently made sense in that culture, but in today's world, it has no place. It's irrelevant. And more people would say, it's actually offensive. And that is the struggle that we face in our world, where you read Scripture and people Take it out of context and they think they understand what the Bible is saying, and they say that's offensive. I'm from Canada in Canada, the battle is way further down the road than here where there's a lot of areas of Canada where you are labeled as speaking hate speech when you are preaching the Bible because of what it, what they believe it says about certain groups of people. So that is a big claim that the skeptics make about The Bible. So we're going to go through those one at at a time. Again, this is just scratching the surface. I'm going to try and get through this as quickly as possible. First is this. Is it reliable? How do we know that the message has stayed the same? How do we know that it hasn't changed over time? And this one's fairly simple. Um, The answer, the short answer is we have more evidence about the original biblical manuscripts than any other historical book. Any other book that we would consider historical from that day and age, um, the Bible has more original manuscripts, more original evidence that we can look at and say, here is the original document, and so therefore we can compare it to today's scripture and we can say, oh, the message is the same message is the same. In the 1940s, there was an amazing discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And maybe you've heard of this. In the Dead Sea region in Israel, there was these caves. And in the 1940s, they discovered in one of these caves, all these original scripture manuscripts. This was an amazing discovery. It actually, this claim here, it made huge strides forward to the credibility of the truthfulness of the manuscripts, how it has not changed over the years. There are you know, from time to time, they will discover some discrepancies of maybe the spelling of an original Greek word, something like that, but there's never any major theological or historical discrepancies between the original manuscripts and what we have in our Bible today. There's a couple, if you read through the New Testament, you'll find one in Mark chapter 16 and one in John chapter 7, there's a note, and it'll say this, the following verses were not in the known, origin, the, the earliest manuscripts. And so apparently there were some early manuscripts that didn't have these verses. And so it says that. It's not that Christianity is trying to hide that. It says it right there. Some of the earliest manuscripts didn't have these verses, but yet it's in the scripture. So that's the, that's the first one. Is it reliable? Has it changed over the years? If you took the movie like The Da Vinci Code, literally, where they made this claim that somewhere in like the third or fourth century... Constantine decided to put the Bible together in order to, and he tweaked it over the years in order to have more power over people. Whatever the Da Vinci Code said, you know that is what a lot of people believe happened. Well, that movie was fiction, and I saw it, and it was a good movie because I like Tom Hanks. But there was a lot of people who were so offended by that, like, how dare you make that claim about the Bible? And I think there were people that saw that and looked at it as, wow, that's really what happened. But that's not what happened. The original manuscripts and what we have today are the same. All right, that one was easy. They get harder as we go along. Second one is this. Is it fiction? Is it fiction? How do we know that these are true events and not fairy tales? Um, And here's some reasons why we can trust that these things actually happened. The first one, and I talked about this a couple weeks ago, in the New Testament, all the New Testament was written within 30 to 40, maybe 50 years of when Jesus lived, of when Jesus died and rose again. Um, So what that means is that while all the Gospels were written, most of the epistles were written, all the eyewitnesses were still alive. So if you were going to make something up, if you were going to make something up as a way to say, we're going to start this religion, we're going to make up all these claims, you'd have to wait until all the people who were alive then had died so that you could make it up and there would be no eyewitnesses to say, wait a minute, I was there, that didn't happen. It would be like if I decided to make up a story about Homestead Church... And I wrote a document that said, in the first two and a half years of Homestead Church, we saw thousands, tens of thousands of people come, and the church grew to be a mega church. And I became known worldwide as the greatest pastor ever, right? I could write that down. Well, I would have to wait until none of you were around, right? Because all of you would be able to say, yeah, I was there. That was not the case, I was there all those Sundays. None of that happened. So the fact that the New Testament was written within about 30 to 40 years, and you'll see that. We talked about the Gospel of Luke, how he detailed all these things, and he named all these names to say, they're still alive. If you want to fact check me, the Apostle Paul does the same thing. If you want to fact check me, here's all the names of the people who were there. Go talk to them. They're still alive. So that adds huge credibility to the, the Word of God. Also, there are non-Christian historical writers that write about the events in Scripture. Roman historians write of Roman history, which the Roman Empire was happening during the New Testament. Roman historians write of Pilate, write of Herod. They write of Pilate's execution of Jesus. And then in their version of history, they say, and there were some followers that believed he rose again. That's their Roman version of history. Josephus is a well-known and widely accepted historical writer, alive during the first century. He was not a believer, not a Christ follower, and he writes all these historical accounts, including Jesus, who he was, a man who lived, who made claims of being the Son of God, who was crucified by the Romans. And he also notes, many of his followers believed that they saw him after he had died. These are historical accounts written by these non-Christian writers. These are historical accounts. Accounts. One of the most convincing proofs to me, though, of the truth of the Bible, is archaeology. At the start of the 19th century, um, archaeology, you know, became something that they were getting more and more advanced at. They could dig down in the dirt in that part of the region in the Mediterranean world, and they would uncover remains of cities, and uh, they would look at all these things, and and. over and over archaeology has shown so much light into the bible times both the old and the new testament Um, there is a quote by an author i read uh, most of his book david limbaugh he wrote a book called jesus on trial he's a lawyer and he basically said if i was a lawyer making a case for jesus for the truth of the gospel and he lays out all the evidence he has. Here's a quote that he puts in his book, Jesus on Trial. It's going to be on the screen. In addition to confirming the historical existence of some 100 biblical figures and dozens of biblical cities, archaeology has, has substantiated more than 60 historical details in the Gospel of John and 80 in the, Gosp- in the Book of Acts. Hundreds of archaeological finds have confirmed the existence of specific people and events that were recorded in Luke's Gospel and the Book of Acts and were originally assumed to be incorrect. And I love this sentence because we just finished a series on the on the Gospel of Luke. Luke's reliability as a historian is thus considered impeccable. When we looked at the Gospel of Luke, one thing I said over and over was Luke's goal was to investigate everything and to list detail and name and all these details that could be fact-checked. And as archaeology uncovers these things, even when they at first were thought to be untrue, archaeology uncovers and says, "Oh, it happened just like they said it did. Oh, this was here just like the Bible writers said it was. There's an example from the Gospel of John, chapter 1 or chapter 5 verse 1 and 2. I'm going to read you a few verses from John. It says this, and this is the story of a healing that Jesus did. Chapter 5 verse 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate, a pool which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades, or five roofs. So when you're reading that story, you're like, yeah, get all that stuff out of the way, all those details. I don't care about any of that. I want to get to the part where the guy who's paralyzed gets in the water and gets healed, and that's awesome. Well, what happened was, and I love this story, in the early 1900s, archaeologists, as they were uncovering remains of Jerusalem in the original city, they found this area, Bethesda. And this was amazing. And they said, wow, this is, just like the, this is just where they said it was in the Bible. Only they didn't find a pool. And there were no roofed colonnades and there was no gate. There was no sheep gate. None of those things. And so they used that as evidence and said, Scripture is not trustworthy. This is not true because we've looked, we're looking at the evidence and there's none of those things there. But what happened, and I love this, is about 40 or 50 years later, They dug a little deeper, and they continued to dig. And they said, oh, there's more stuff here. Oh, wait. And they found there was the gate. And by the gate was the pool. And by the pool was the five roofed colonnades. And they said, oh, it is just as the Gospel of John says. Even then, they thought originally it was untrue. Archeology span has uncovered more and more truth of biblical events. The archaeological verification of biblical text is insurmountable. And the more I've read about it, there's just more and more examples. There's hundreds of examples. So we see that, the evidence, that the, the evidence is there that these events happened. The manuscripts have not changed over time. It was written when the eyewitnesses were still alive. There is strong supporting evidence that these events happened. So the third one is this. We've looked at is it reliable, is it fiction, but now the third one is it contradictions. Doesn't it contradict itself? And we'll go through these pretty quick. There are those who point out discrepancies in the scripture, and they say the Bible contradicts itself. In this gospel, it says this. This gospel telling the same story has different details. If this is the word of God, the inspired word of God, how can there be these contradictions? Um, One example people will use is the account of the resurrection, where in Matthew, it would say, the angel said to Mary. And in the gospel of John, It says, Mary saw two angels. So people will be like, well, one angel, two angels. How can that be accurate? How can I trust anything? And, you know, first of all, I say, well, if that's all you got, I mean, they both say the tomb was empty, and that's kind of the big deal. But, you know, I don't believe the angel thing even accounts. I mean, I I don't believe that's even a contradiction. I think there could be two angels there. And when one of them spoke, the angel spoke. It just means that the angels, unlike my kids, spoke one at a time. The angels spoke, and there were two of them there. I mean, that doesn't, you know, that doesn't, that's not so hard to, to, to grasp. Certain parables um, contain different details. In different gospel accounts. But what Bible scholars would say, as was the custom in that day and age, a rabbi or a teacher would use the same parable on different occasions when he was talking to a different audience. He would bring out different themes or emphasize different factors or elements of a parable. So it's very, very possible and plausible that Jesus was speaking these same parables to a different audience at a different time. Different writers were emphasizing different things. Or that God was emphasizing different elements of a story through a different voice. But there's no theological discrepancies. It's not like there's a a version of one of the Gospels that say the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus thought he was going to feed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish, but it didn't work. Because Thomas, first in line, took the two fish for himself. And everyone else is looking at him like, what gives? And he's like, what? I'm hungry. And then we ran out of food like four people in because all we had was five loaves and two fish. Nothing like that, okay? There's nothing like that. In all four Gospels, all 5,000 people were fed. But the most amazing evidence to me, and I'm fascinated by this part, that the Bible can be trusted, that it's not contradicting itself, is in the area of prophecy, in the area of prophecy. Now, you can Google is your friend here. You can look up Bible prophecies that were fulfilled and the list of things I was studying some of these this week and I was amazed. In the Old Testament there are prophecies which predict what's going to happen in future events. So just a couple of examples real quick. Micah chapter 4:10. This is a pro- the prophet Micah in the Old Testament. He is predicting again God is prophesying through him saying to the Israelites, you better smarten up because you're worshiping idols, and you are turning from the one true God. And what's going to happen is the Babylonian empire is going to come and capture you, destroy your city, and take you off into exile. And as Micah writes this, prophesies this, and writes it down, not only have those things not happened yet, but Babylon isn't even a world power then. The Assyrians were the world empire then. So, it's not like it's making an easy claim. It is claiming that an empire, which isn't even powerful yet, is going to come and take over the city. And that happens. Isaiah, I'm going to read these verses in Isaiah chapter 44. This is prophesying about the same thing. God is using the prophet Isaiah. These words will be on the screen. Who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited? Of the towns of Judah they shall be rebuilt. Of their ruins I will dis- restore them. This is God talking through the prophet. Who says to the watery deep, Be dry, and I will dry up your streams? Who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please? He will say of Jerusalem, Let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, Let its foundations be laid. Okay, so this is a prophecy about the same thing. Israel. Babylon is going to come, and they're going to destroy your city walls. They're going to destroy the temple, and you will be taken away. And that's what the prophecy is saying. This is going to happen. But then he's also prophesying that Cyrus is going to allow them to return and rebuild the walls and rebuild the temple. He's prophesying that all these things are going to happen. Well, when he wrote this, when this was written, none of that had happened yet. The temple was still there. The walls were still there. Nothing had been destroyed. Babylon wasn't a world power. And Cyrus, who he names by name, will be the one to let them come back. Cyrus wouldn't be born for another hundred years when this was written. So this is an amazing prophecy. How in the world? And over and over and over again, the Old Testament prophesies about things that would happen. Obviously, there is a supernatural force at work in this. Just the Messiah, just Jesus, there are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah. All of them fulfilled in Jesus. Specific things. Being born in Bethlehem. Preceded by one who would be John the Baptist. who, uh, Who would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. Who would be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. Very specific stuff that were all fulfilled in Jesus. So I read, there was one article that I read about this. And they said, just take eight of those. You know, there's 300. Let's just take the odds of eight of those happening in one person. Eight of those prophecies being fulfilled. The odds are, and here's another big math number for you, are 1 in 10 to the 17th power. Do we have that 1 in 10 with 17 zeros after it, okay? Maybe I'll throw one of these big numbers at you every week because we had one of those last week. So they illustrated it like this. Imagine the state of Texas, very large state. You covered the entire state of Texas in silver dollars that were two feet deep. Okay, so two feet deep, silver dollars covering the entire state of Texas. And on one of those silver dollars is a little red X. The odds of this happening is you just picking a random spot in Texas, reaching in and pulling out that silver dollar. It just is impossible. And that is eight of the 300 prophecies that were prophesied about the Messiah. It's amazing to think about these things. That prophecy, those prophecies that came true, Speaks to the validity of the Word of God, to the validity of the Bible. And finally, we're going to close with this last one. Is it, sure, it can be truthful. Sure, maybe the contradictions are overblown, but isn't it irrelevant? That's the last one irrelevant. Isn't it just simply outdated? Most certainly, isn't it culturally regressive when we read these things? Doesn't it condone slavery? and the mistreatment of women, and polygamy. Things that we would say today are repressive, and intolerable, and everyone's favorite word today, offensive, that offends me, therefore it can't be true. So we're gonna talk about that. And you first must understand in the Bible there is culture and there is context. And I'll give an example of that. Without understanding the culture and the context of when these were written, you can greatly misunderstand what the Bible is saying. There's an example in the book of Colossians, and I'll read this verse. Colossians chapter 3, verse 22 says this. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. So you look at that, reverence for the Lord. Slaves, obey your masters at all times because that's what God wants. That means the Bible is saying slavery is good. Right? That's what, when you read that, and this is a verse that people would say, the Bible condones slavery. How can I allow this to be truth in my life when it condones something that today's world we say, no, that's offensive. We don't condone that at all. Well, you have to understand this. We're reading, when you read that from a North American viewpoint, you think slavery as, you know, civil war, racism, slaves from Africa being kidnapped and sold as property, races of people being. Uh, deemed as having less value. This is what our viewpoint is. But in the Roman world, slaves weren't a different race. They weren't, you know, you couldn't distinguish them in any way from any, uh, anybody else. They weren't segregated. They weren't kidnapped. This was the Roman Empire. This was an empire ruling an enormous chunk of the world. About 80% of the people alive in Israel during this time in Judah They would have been considered slaves. They would have been indentured servants. This was, they were trusted. They were trusted household servants. They were teachers and accountants and estate managers. This was a form of employment. This was just how the world worked. This wasn't a lifelong thing. They would be able to work their way out of this in about 10 years. They weren't mistreated. And so not only that, not only does the context shine a different light on that, but that's not even what Paul in Colossians is writing about. That's not even the point he's trying to make. He's not saying, hey, slaves, we're okay with you being slaves. Just do what you're told. What Paul is writing is this. If you read the verses around it's this. Husbands and wives, children and parents, slaves and masters, no matter who you are, no matter what position you find yourself in, under authority or over authority, over somebody else, no matter who you are, Serve others, love others, value others, treat others with kindness and love. This is the message of the gospel. This is the message that Scripture says. And man, is that message certainly relevant in today's world? No matter who you are, treat others with value and respect and serve them and love them. The Bible throughout, in every culture it has been a part of, has been revolutionary in teaching that all people have value. The world did not value women. The world did not value those who were sick or poor. And the Bible came along and said, no, everyone has value because we are children of God. Everyone has value. We need to love and serve and treat others with that value. When you understand context, when you understand the scope of what the Bible is saying, then you can understand, man, maybe I was reading something in there that wasn't really there. Maybe I was reading it through a very American frame point or viewpoint, And it really wasn't what it was saying. But here's the tricky part. If the difficult parts of the Bible only make sense when we factor in the culture that it was a part of, then why wouldn't we say it only makes sense in that culture? If we have to change it in order for it to make sense in our culture, why would we say it doesn't apply today, right? Why wouldn't we say that? This can be difficult. This would be the people who are saying that morality standard, that standard of morality... Whatever it is, all those things that Jesus taught, whatever we hear in the Old Testament, well, that made sense in that culture, but it doesn't make sense today. And here's something that helps me navigate through this, and we're going to wrap up here in just a minute. Um, And please, I'm going to try and say this as clearly as possible because this could be misunderstood, but the revelation of God is not the Bible, okay? God's plan for humanity was not to reveal a document, right? All those prophecies in the Old Testament weren't saying someday there will be this document that everyone will be able to read and know the truth. That's not God's plan. That's not God's revelation. What is God's revelation to mankind? It's Jesus, Jesus Christ. We're going to talk more about that next week. But the revelation of God is Jesus Christ. The Bible points to Jesus throughout. Jesus even makes that claim after he rose from the dead. He was talking to the the disciples, even before they recognized him as Jesus. And he says, how can you not understand Didn't you understand it when the prophets spoke of me? Didn't you understand it when Moses spoke of me? You know all those Old Testament scriptures, Jesus makes this claim. It all points to me. This is what Jesus is saying. That's a big claim. But the Bible points to Jesus throughout. Now, we find so much truth and value and insight and direction through the pages of the Bible. We do. There is truth there. But it points to Jesus. It points to Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, our King. The Bible comes alive in us when Jesus is alive in us. When we find a difficult passage of Scripture, so if you're, having, if you're reading something and you say, this just doesn't make sense and I don't understand the culture and it seems like it's saying something, it's not. If you're having a hard time with a passage of Scripture, start with this. Does this point me to Jesus? What can I learn about Jesus through this? How does this allow me to know more of Jesus? How can I know him better? How can I let him be Lord of my life? How can I love others like he did? How does this point to Jesus? If you have a hard time trusting certain parts of scriptures, think, can I trust Jesus? And the answer to that is yes, and that we will get into more next week when we talk, to, talk about Jesus, who he was and who he claimed to be. And it's interesting to note what even Jesus said about the Scripture. Jesus talked about the Scripture so often. He talked about the Old Testament, the Jewish Scriptures. When he was tempted in the desert, what did he use to battle against the temptation? He quoted Scripture. He quoted the Old Testament. When he was questioned by the Pharisees all the time, what would he do? He would quote Scriptures. You've heard it said. You've heard it written as it's written. He quoted Scripture. He held Scripture in high regard, and if Jesus trusted it, I trust it because I go along with what Jesus said, and we'll talk again more about that next week. Jesus refers to the Old Testament characters as real people. He talks about Abraham and Jonah and Noah, talks about the Israelites getting manna in the wilderness, talks about Daniel and Isaac and Jacob. Jesus holds Scripture in high regard. He refers to the Old Testament as inspired words of God. He even warned against even a letter being altered or changed. He held Scripture in high regard. So I believe, as what I've gone through today, and again, I was just kind of scratching the surface, and I'm learning a lot of this stuff too, but I believe there is undeniable proof of the accuracy and reliability of the Bible. I believe there is. I believe there's undeniable proof and evidence. But more than any archaeological find, more than any ancient manuscript that is discovered, whether or not they ever discover Noah's Ark somewhere, you know, regardless of any prophecy that was fulfilled, more than any of those things is what Jesus says about the scripture because it points to him and I trust him and he holds scripture in high regard. So as we close today, I just want to ask you this. These pages in this book, the pages, the words on these pages If that's true, if this is the word of God, if this is the word of God designed to encourage us and correct us and guide us through this life, man, how many times in life do we say, I have no idea what to do. I have no idea what to do with my marriage, with my kids, with my job, with my finances. If we believe that this is God's guidance for us and that there is truth in these words, which there is, How should that affect us? How should we treat this? How should we dive into this? I don't really think there's a middle ground here. Either we believe it's the true word of God or it's just something that some guys wrote. But if we believe it's the true word of God, we need to have this part of our life, of all the things that we can hand down to our kids, and all the events and activities we have our kids involved in are great. I'm glad I have a kid in gymnastics and in marching band and all the other activities. And for your family, it might be baseball and soccer. Of all the things we can hand down to our kids, soccer skills are great. Playing the flute is great. All these things are great. But how much more do we want to hand down what is the word of God in your life, how much truth and life is in these pages. Why would we not want that to be first and foremost of what we have in our family and in our kids and say, no, I know, flute, marching band, gymnastics is great, but I want you more than anything to have your life rooted in the truth of God's word. Amen? Amen. Let's have this be a place of importance in our life. Let's read it. Let's read the whole thing. And even in the parts that are hard to understand, find a translation that works for you and just start reading it and allow it to point you to Jesus, the Son of God, the author of our faith, our Savior and Lord.